If you would like to follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to begin with the 33rd chapter of 2 Chronicles. Curtis has awakened awakened in me uh, the need for repentance. Uh, Knowing that I'm not making the kind of progress that I would like to make, like I'm plateaued. And so I I appreciate the fact that he's kind of leading me and nudging me without intending to. When Martin Luther first nailed his theses on the wall, the number one shot fired out of the cannon was uh, repentance continual repentance. And he was, I feel in some ways he was, uh, that was really the point when uh, the Reformation began was that first statement. And he said, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, He meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And we live in an evangelical culture which assumes that it's a singular event. And I think we've, uh, we have become, in a sense, pygmies because of it. Uh, that, in fact, sanctification cannot proceed without continual repentance. And, of course, it assumes that there is indwelling sin. Why it is that the Lord decided to leave that in us and give us that to struggle with is a uh, a thing to ponder over. Why wasn't it just, why weren't we just set on easy street where holiness was just automatic. In his wisdom, he did not do that. Uh, I want to, uh, before I get into the main body there, I would like to look at 
uh, Jeremiah 15.4, and uh, I'll just be reading that one verse for the impact that it has as we study Manasseh. I will make them an object of horror. This is our Lord speaking. Among all the kingdoms of the earth. Because of Manasseh. The son of Hezekiah. The king of Judah. For what he did in Jerusalem. Not good. Not a good report. So now I'm beginning to read from verse 1, chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for for 55 years in Jerusalem. As far as I know, this is the longest reign of any of the kings of either Israel or Judah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put a carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel outdoing in evil. 
The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Hooks, uh, according to the footnote, that's a strip of leather that goes through the nostril. And uh, you can control people pretty well with that. They'll go anywhere where you tug. <clears throat> that was common among the Assyrians. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by, he meaning God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate, and he encircled the oval within it and made it very high. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, even his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, God of Israel, behold, they are among the records of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated by him and all his sin and his unfaithfulness and the sites on which he had built high places and erect Asherim and the carved images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the records of Hosiah. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and Ammon his son became king in his place. I find that remarkable. Uh, probably the, the most wicked of all the kings, including Ahab. 
the type section of wickedness. And yet, when he humbled himself and repented, God brought him back home. Said for our instruction that we should never be timid about rushing to our Savior for help, for forgiveness, for cleansing. God's mercy is astonishing. Uh, A great encouragement to us. The longest reign, the most evil king, and yet there was mercy. Now I would like to turn to Ezra, chapter 9. Manasseh, of course, was uh, just before the fall of Jerusalem. There were three or four kings between the incidences. And now we are, Ezra is a figure of of the Israelites coming back home to Jerusalem. At this point, the temple had already been finished, but the wall was still rubble. And I would call Ezra the mourning scribe. Mourning meaning full of tears. And I'm reading from chapter 9, the first six verses. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abomination. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. 
But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. So why is this man appalled? Why is he reacting this way? And actually, intermarriages like that are not, as I understand it, there was no prohibition for that. So the problem must be the influence. If there have not become believing Gentiles or become Jews, then they are going to be influencing you some way or another. It's the problem of Solomon. The one thing that took him down and left him on a sad note was the influence of trying to please wives who were pagans. So his response here was, what will it take for us to learn? After we have in our recent history, the absolute pile of rubble that was Jerusalem after Babylon got through with it, were hauled off to be slaves to a foreign power and we don't seem to learn anything. We come back to the Holy Land and we start this process all over again. No wonder he was appalled. Will will anything ever happen? Will, Will we ever learn anything? How can we keep returning to this unfaithfulness? Well, the next jump that I make is several centuries now, and I want to look at, excuse me, I'll do that here in a minute. I wanted to take a quick look at the word tremble. This seemed to identify true believers. Here's the people who came and joined Ezra in his appalled state were those who tremble. Verse 9, 4 says, And everyone who trembled at the words of of the God of Israel came and joined me. And in... Chapter 10, verse 3, he says, 
according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. It's an interesting flavor to that expression. So I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 62. No, 66. And I'm reading the first two verses of that. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. It doesn't sound very casual when you're talking about somebody trembling. Interesting that he's saying, what you're trying to do here is build a house for me. Uh, is in, in a sense, uh, inappropriate. I don't need, I've been for eternity past, I've never had a house. And I'm not looking for house builders in this sense, temple builders. What I'm looking for is him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. Interesting job description. That's what God desires of us. My next one is very familiar to you. Philippians 2.12. In case we think that was an Old Testament thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
So the very notion of our taking an inventory and launching, moving toward repentance is to be done with a sense of awe because it is God himself who put that desire in the heart. And without his aid, it'll, go, it'll be a flat tire. That's sometimes where I feel like I am right now, the flat tire. <laughs> Not making the kind of progress that I would desire. Now I'm going to go outside the scriptures for a minute and study a man named Charles Simeon. His time frame would have been, would have included the American Revolution. So I have jumped ahead a long ways in history. Uh, he was a uh, an unusual figure. He occupied the same pulpit, pulpit for 54 years in the University Church of Cambridge, where the famous university is, still is. And he was despised a good part of that time. They didn't want Bible preachers. And he was one. Uh, he, uh, one of his contemporaries would have been Will, William Wilberforce. And he said, Simeon was with us today. I so much want to be like him. And him be like Christ. John Newton said, there's good things going on in Cambridge. Also a contemporary, although quite a bit older than, than Simeon would have been at the time. John Stott, who labored in London and passed away some decade ago. I can't, I don't, I've lost track of that. Uh, was a uh, I suppose the way to put it would be to say that uh, uh, Charles Simeon was uh, admired by John Stott and he lived a life very similar. They both were a part of, had a long ministry to a university setting. He was also a mentor of Henry Martin. So this, I'm throwing out names here to tell you that, that this was an extraordinary man. Okay. He also was uh, instrumental in the placing of many pastors throughout England and also in India, where during his ministry, 
the prohibition was stopped that kept people from evangelizing in India, which was a work by William Wilberforce, by the way. Now I want to show you some of the difficulties that Simeon had. Uh, meant to encourage us that God uses men who are struggling with their own sin. The most fundamental trial that Simeon had and that we all have was himself. He had a somewhat harsh and self-assertive air about him. One day early in Simeon's ministry, he was visiting Henry then, who was a pastor 12 miles from Cambridge at Yelling. When he left to go home, Ben's daughters complained to their father about his manner. Ben took the girls out into the backyard and said, pick me one of those peaches. But it was early in the summer and the time of peaches was not yet. They asked why he would want the green unripe fruit. Ben replied, well, my dears, it is green now and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. Interesting man who could look at somebody with some character flaws some sin bubbling up here and see beyond it to the impact that was going to be there. Later in his ministry, but his friends rebuked him as well. For example, he had the bad habit of speaking as if he were very angry about mere trifles. One day at Mr. Hankinson's house, he became so irritated at how the servant was stoking the fire that he gave him a swat on the back to get him to stop. Well, what sort of stuff is this bubbling up? Then when he was leaving, the servant got a bridle mixed up and Simeon's temper broke out violently against the man. Mr. Hankinson wrote a letter as if it were from his servant and put it in Simeon's bag to be found later. In it, he said that he did not see how a man who preached and prayed so well could be in such a passion about nothing 
and wear no bridle on his tongue. He signed it, John Softly. (laughs) Simeon responded on April the 12th, 1804, directly to the servant with the words, to John Softly, from Charles, proud and irritable. I most cordially thank you, my dear friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. Then he wrote to his friend, Mr. Hankinson, I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul near to God, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. (laughs) So if sometimes you get discouraged about your progress, you know you're in good company. Uh, It doesn't make the... uh, the want or the what is missing any of the more palatable but it does give you hope that there is ultimate victory and the key to his development in the latter years of his he obviously made progress and he described it as growing down growing down. Another way to describe a developing humility about who you are apart from Christ. The uh, subject of Humility and contrition that's a common theme throughout the scriptures is worthy of a uh, a little bit of review. And I would like to start with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. And I'm reading verses 3 and 4. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first two of the list of Beatitudes are what we're talking about here. 
Now I would like to look at Isaiah chapter 57. Verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's where God dwells. Uh, Wanting to realize His nearness. is an impetus to becoming contrite and lowly. Interesting how we had that discussion, Johnny, a couple of, about a month ago, I think, the parallel between that and the first two Beatitudes. They're almost saying the same thing. contrite and lowly. Contrition, the same thing as mourning. Being saddened by my own failures and sins. Coming to Christ with tears in my eyes because of the uh, pathetic progress Why? Because there's no place else to go. He's the only one that can fix this. Then I would like to turn back to James chapter 4. And I would read verses uh, 5 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Sort of like a jealous lover. (laughs) But He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Seems like strange admonition here. Who wants to go around mourning and hound dog? I'm assuming that it is beneficial, that it is a tool to help us get where we desire to get. Mm-hmm. What a strange pre- <laughs> bit of medicine to take. To actually go into a season or an hour or a day or whatever and just be appalled at the sin which still resides within me unmortified, unconquered. Now I would like to uh, close with a something from Richard Sibbs. He may not be everybody's favorite Puritan, but I believe he's mine. And what he has to say here is, uh, in an odd way, it is encouraging. He writes, It is good that corruption should remain in us. Really? That the glory of God may the more appear. When as Satan, that great and strong enemy of mankind, shall be foiled and overturned by a weak and poor Christian who is full of corruptions, and that through the strength of faith, though mixed with much distrust, for a Christian in a state of sin and corruption to overcome the great adversary of mankind. What a wonderment it is. It tendeth much to the shame and dishonor of that fiery dragon 
that weak and sinful man should be his conqueror. Oh, how it confounds him to think that a grain of mustard seed should be stronger than the gates of hell. It's not what we are. It's what He is. That it should be able to remove mountains of opposition and temptations cast up by Satan and our rebellious hearts. There he's speaking of a confederacy of the heart and the devil. There's some stuff inside me that he's aware of and that he can use to hit for his purposes. Cast up by Satan and our rebellious hearts between God and us and it most needs be a torment to Satan that a weak child, a decrepit old man, that's me, should by a spirit of faith put him to flight. Uh, sort of like a honoring Gungadin. Uh, how is it that God chooses we, the weak, the sinful, the imperfect to win His battles or to win battles through Him? <laughs> so we're talking about warfare and we're talking about entering it as weak people. I see a note here that says my battery's running low. I think that's true in more ways than one. Lord, we will not give up. As long as there's strength in your arm, tenderness in your heart, and truth in your promises. Our closing hymn is 415 in the Trinity hymnal.